Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of the QuietMark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO at QuietMark. QuietMark is the independent international approval award program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. It encourages companies worldwide to prioritise noise reduction within the design of everyday machines and appliances and to find solutions to noise problems to benefit health and well-being. Unlike previous guests on the QuietMark podcast, who've tended to be acousticians and sound experts from the worlds of architecture and product design, our guest on episode 8, like myself, has a long background in advertising. Steve Keller is Sonic Strategy Director for Studio Resonate at Pandora, a subsidiary of Cyrus XM and the largest ad-supported audio entertainment streaming service in the US. So why, you may well ask, am I interviewing an audio branding expert on the QuietMark podcast, a show that usually raises awareness to the dangers of noise pollution and the well-being benefits of good acoustics in buildings and product design? Well, my reason for bringing Steve to the show at this stage is that one of the recurring concerns aired by our previous guests has been the fact that when it comes to building design or product design, stakeholders, the people for whom a building or a product might be being created, often come to the table with a great amount of reference for the visuals of a building. They can wax lyrical about what they want a product or building to look like. But when you ask them the question, what would you like it to sound or feel like? They get stumped. They sometimes struggle to find the words or language to explain the feeling they want their building to convey. All too often, sound gets overlooked. In fact, the founder of the Noise Abatement Society, John Connell, described environmental noise as the forgotten pollutant because unlike smoke billowing out of chimneys and exhaust pipes causing air pollution, noise can't be seen. Which brings to mind the old saying, out of sight, out of mind. I always start each podcast saying that QuietMark seeks to find solutions to noise problems to benefit health and well-being. And previous guests on the podcast have each shared examples of projects that they've worked on where good acoustics has significantly improved people's lives. Nevertheless, in this episode, I really wanted to explore the human relationship with sound further in a way that everyone could relate to. I suddenly recalled a conversation that Steve and I enjoyed in my garden one Sunday lunch last year when Steve said, Simon, Without taking too long to think about it, name the first three adverts from your youth that pop into your head. Instantly, as my mind whirred through the roller decks of the archives of ads in my brain, I came back with a finger of fudge, the shaken vac and R. White's lemonade. So Steve said, what made you think of those ads first, Simon? And I said, they're songs I can still sing to this very day. Those ads are all probably now getting on for 40 years old and yet I can still sing the shaken vac to bring the freshness back and a finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat and R. White's Lemonade, well who can forget the secret lemonade drinker played by none other than Elvis Costello's father, Ross McManus. Being the sound branding expert and psychology graduate that he is, Steve was able to explain to me why it was that those three adverts were the first ones I thought of and it really powerfully illustrated to me how deeply sound is integral to our core being. And it's a subject that Steve speaks of so brilliantly in a TED talk called Harnessing the Power of Sound by Steve Keller at TEDx Nashville. So I'm now going to read a short bio introduction to tell you a little bit more about Steve. And after that, you're going to hear some famous audio mnemonics that Steve plays at the very beginning of his TED talk before I say hello to Steve. So thank you for joining us. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation with one of the world's best sound branding experts. Steve Keller is Sonic Strategy Director for Studio Resonate, Pandora's audio first creative consultancy. He is recognised as one of the world's leading experts in the field of sonic identity, blending art and science into award-winning audio strategies and creative content for a variety of global agencies and brands. With a degree in psychology and over 30 years experience in the music and advertising industries, Steve's work explores the way music and sound impact consumer perception and behaviour. Recent experiments have examined the relationship between sound and taste, the existence of audio archetypes, the costs and benefits of music, soundscapes and noise in healthcare settings, and how bias impacts the aesthetic judgments of advertising professionals. He is the recipient of the iHeartMedia Scholarship for Leadership in Audio Innovation and is currently completing an executive MBA through the Berlin School of Creative Leadership, focused on how brands can more effectively measure and predict returns on audio investments. Welcome to the show, Steve Keller. Hi, Simon. I'm thrilled to be here. 
I always love talking about my passion for audio and sound. So thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. What we just listened to there, as I said in the introduction, was the opening to Steve's TED Talk, which I recommend people can watch on YouTube. It's called Harnessing the Power of Sound. Steve Keller, TED X Nashville. And it's a fantastic presentation. It's a 17-minute presentation in which, Steve, you talk about the world of sound branding. So over to you. Give us a bit about your background, what you do, and how you came to do that TED Talk. Sure. Um, I've been around for a while, so, uh, you know, telling my background is, uh, is, is better served up over a few pints uh, <laughs> one night in a pub. But the short story is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a combination of three passions. One, psychology. That's actually what my training is in, my university degree. Uh, the other is music and entertainment. I worked in Nashville for 30 years in every facet of the music business. And one of the things that I did while I was there was uh, wrote music for commercials. And while doing that, I found that I had a real love for branding and advertising. And ultimately, I brought those three passions together, uh, started my own company in 2005, which grew into an audio consultancy, looking at how brands were using sound to harness the power of perception and behavior. Uh, and so that's basically been my focus for the last few years. Uh, and this idea of sonic identity is really simply thinking about how a brand communicates its its values, its personalities, its meaning through sound. Brands are used to doing this all the time visually. Uh, in fact, they spend a lot of time and effort and money in coming up with visual identities and colors and marks and it's a whole system, and then they trademark those, and they've got style guides because they understand the importance of that visual consistency. But it, when it comes to how a brand sounds, it can be all over the map. There's not that intention. Uh, it's usually the last thing that anyone's thinking about. And what we found is that as we've kind of entered the world uh, of smart speakers where we have the Alexas and the the HomePods, the Google Plays, brands are now in a world where you don't see them. There's no text. There's no typography. And so in this world of the digital shelf, how are they going to stand out and be recognized? And it's through these audio assets that they develop to communicate to their brand. So a visual logo is to your eye what an audio logo is to your ear, which is that sequence of, of melodies and tones that you played earlier that gave us cues when we hear bum, 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 bum. Oh, that's Intel. Or bum, 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 bum. That's McDonald's. Oh, that's T-Mobile. Um, we're able to recognize those things very quickly. So that's my world. And storytelling is part of what really sells a product on the visual side of things. You get the right actor, you get the right actress, you get the right story, you get the audience to say, that's the lifestyle I want. I can't have that lifestyle if I don't have that product. I must go and buy that product is theoretically how it works. How does sound in a mnemonic sell Intel? Well, again, I think what we need to do is, is take frameworks that were very accustomed to thinking about when it comes to design um, and typically when it comes to visual design and simply applying that to how we think about sound. So there's a whole design process that's involved when you're thinking about how are you going to express a brand visually. Same thing applies to how do you express your brand sonically. You need to understand what are your brand values, what's the identity, how do you want consumers to perceive the brand? And then we can start blending in some science. What we know from music psychology and uh, psychophysics and um, psychoacoustics, where we know if we want to conjure this kind of a feeling, here's the sonic ingredients, you know, tempo, dynamic, loudness, dissonance, modalities that help us get to those emotions. If there's a particular meaning, is the brand a hero brand? Is it a jester brand? We talk about these archetypes. We can communicate that meaning through sound. And then you start thinking, is there a functional piece of this as well as the aesthetic? So if we've got a product that's making sounds, maybe there's a notification with it. Maybe there's some kind of sonic feedback 
how do we build a, a system of sounds in a world where wherever the consumer has a touch point with audio, we're communicating that brand. Uh, and I think that's what often gets missed when we talk about sonic identity. Brands tend to focus on a particular asset, like an audio logo, a sonic logo. They don't necessarily think about the entire consumer journey. So it's about an experience. It's not just what you hear in a telebroadcast or on the radio. It's also what happens if you're in the environment in a store or what happens in a mobile experience of the brand or what happens when you ask Alexa something about the product. Uh, and so it's beginning to think about sound as a system that shows up in multiple places. And the beauty of sound is with your eyes, you can close them. You don't you can't close your, your ears. You have to stick something in your, your ears to keep the sound from coming. Uh, and so, you know, the, those visual cues um, can work really well with the sonic cues, but we found that sonic cues work well even in the absence of those visual cues. So it's a very powerful medium um, to communicate brand identity. Interestingly, for a period of my career, as, as you know, I worked with uh, music and advertising. And my colleague at the time, a guy called Brian Banks, who made music for everything from IBM to Barbie, said to me that music is in music and advertising is the advert that keeps selling the product after the television's been turned off. And he went on to say, if you think about your favorite ads from your childhood, um, they're probably adverts that you can sing. And in my instance, that was right. I mean, I'm in my early 50s and from the UK and anyone from my age in the UK would be able to sing The Shaken Vac, A Finger of Fudge, A Mars A Day, R. White's Lemonade, I'm a Secret Lemonade Drinker. Those ads that I'm quoting there go back to early 70s, but I know every word to them. And so like I say, if someone says, think of your favorite ads from your childhood, they tend to be the ads that I can sing. So there's this huge emotional connection to audio. It's half of our being. In your TED talk, you talked about dopamine and people's reactions when they heard the Intel dung-dung-dung-dung. And there was only one sound that pricked up their ears more than that. Maybe tell us that story if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So, you know, one of the things uh, that I do in that uh, the, the TED talk is talk about the, the different ways in which we're literally wired for sound. You know, you started talking about um, sound from the aspect of, of memory. And sound is an incredibly powerful mnemonic device. I mean, back when our ancestors first started telling the histories of our tribes, um, before they were able to write them down, um, they probably vocalized them. And these melodies were ways to tell stories and help them be remembered. Uh, so melody, music, sound, really powerful memory structure. But sound also has an effect on our physiology. I mean, you mentioned dopamine. That's part of the, the drug that, that drips in our brain uh, that's really addictive. Uh, we, we love the euphoria, euphoria we get from dopamine. Um, it's associated a lot with uh, with uh, somebody that we've fallen in love with. But there are these, these songs or sounds that are pleasant, that remind us of things in our life or, or happen uh, at significant moments. And those associations um, have our brain releasing dopamine. And every time we listen to that piece of music or hear that particular voice or that particular sound, there's that drip, drip, drip. And that's why there are certain pieces of music we like hearing again and again and again, um, there's oxytocin uh, that is released in our brains when we listen to music and, and move in synchronization with other people. It helps us feel warm and trusting. Uh, and there have been research that's shown in those uh, situations, there's an increase in pro-social behavior. We, we tend to treat each other better if we find that we're kind of moving in a syncopated rhythm with each other. Um, there's cortisol that happens when you hear an alarm sound. So there's this chemical cocktail 
that's happening. Um, and this physiological response, you know, you mentioned this one study that was actually done by Martin Lindstrom, um, where people were wired up to measure their galvanic skin response, um, the dilation of their pupils, their brain waves, their heart rate. He played a series of sounds, and what he wanted to see was what the physiological reaction was. And then he ranked the sounds in order of the power of that reaction. Um, and as you said, the Intel audio logo, when they played that, surprisingly, at least to me, it ranked number two. Uh, you know, I would expect as a memory device, it would be significant. But the idea that it was having an impact on your galvanic skin response, on your heart rate, on your brain waves, um, was extremely powerful. The only sound that beat it out was the sound of a baby crying. Uh, and as I like to say, you know, I mean, that's good for Intel. It might not be that good for the human race. But again, it's just an illustration of how powerful these sounds are, not just for memory, but also in terms of our physiological impact. That's very interesting, Steve. In fact, I read a study a couple of years ago, and it talked about um, an old people's home. And the people in the old people's home were being quite slovenly. And the owner of the old people's home thought, we need to do something here to get these people exercising more, get them out of their chairs, improve their mood. And they started playing um, classical music, but it had the opposite effect. The more gentle the music they pumped through, the more they sort of sat back and relaxed and didn't really do anything. And then they had an idea to play music, which would have been the type of music that these people, this cross-section of older people, would have heard when they were 14 or 15 years old, which happened to be Glenn Miller and, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and Jive. And the moment they put Glenn Miller on, you know, Chattanooga Choo Choo and all those sort of songs, everyone was up and uh, getting on and chatting. And they, the study kind of said that music that you listened to when you were 14 or 15, those years of sort of sexual awakening and it's a real changing time, you will always be moved by that type of music so certainly for me all those sort of new romantic bands of the 80s the Duran Durans and the and certainly Michael Jackson Prince Madonna those sort of 80s heroes they will always get my feet moving and uh, lift my mood and my spirit so we've really looked at music as a memory device you know those older people there and the physicality getting up and moving but what about the psychology of sound and the behavior of sound what would you say about that i know you've covered this in your ted talk sure i you know i think this is one of the the really fascinating pieces for me too because people might um you know say okay steve i i get it i get sound as a memory device or you know twinkle twinkle little star i learned my abcs by you know singing a little song i get the fact that there might be a physiological impact you know i might not you know, taste the dopamine when it's dripping, but I know the, the the response to that. But to go to the next step and to talk about how can this have an impact on my behavior? You're not going to tell me that you could shape my behavior with sound. Um, and and that's where, you know, I think the research is particularly interesting. Uh, in the TED Talk, I, you know, I mentioned um, a study uh, that was done in a wine shop. Very famous study by uh, Hargraves and North, uh, where shoppers went in, they walked up to a shelf, there were German wines, there were French wines, they picked which wine they want, they checked out, and then on the way out, somebody stopped them. They had a clipboard, started to ask them questions. Why did you choose that wine? And you know the responses were everything from, because I liked the label, or I knew that that wine, or I thought maybe it would go with my meal. And the researcher said, did you happen to notice anything that was playing in the background? And a very small percentage of people even noticed that there was music playing in the background. And an even smaller percentage said that it made any difference in their choice. But at the end of the experiment, what they found was that on the days that they were playing music, which was French music, 77% of the wines that they sold were French. Now, you might stop me right there and say, well, okay, that makes sense. We all know French wine is good. People are probably getting a French wine because that's what they would get normally. But here was the trick. There were some days where they played German Schlager or country music. And what they found was on the days that they played that music, 
73% of the wines that were sold were German. So just by changing the background music, they changed people's choices with wine. We can look at this in, in other industries. Look at casinos, for instance. The sounds are designed there to keep you engaged. The sound for winning um, is not that much different from some of the other sounds of dropping in your coins or not winning. And it builds this anticipation. They found that when the sounds are there, you are actually overestimating your chances of winning and you're underestimating the amount of time that you've spent at that slot machine. So are you saying, Steve, that the sound in casinos actually has an impact on the takings? Sure. If people are staying there longer, if they are continually being prompted to put their money in, whether they're winning or losing, that's going to have an effect on the casino's bottom line. In fact, they did a study uh, where they wanted to see what happened if they removed these noises and these sonic cues. And what they found was that without the sound prompting, um, they saw a 24% drop in the revenue in the casinos. So there's a reason why when you're in Las Vegas, you hear the bells, the whistles, the sounds going off constantly. Because again, it's that drip, drip, drip of dopamine that we're getting that keeps us addicted and keeps those behaviors happening. One of the other areas of research that's been fascinating for me uh, is the field of psychophysics. Um, And that's just a fancy word for looking at the way sensory input helps us make uh, sense, literally, of the world around us. Um, And I've had the the privilege of uh, working with a scientist from Oxford, Charles Spence, who heads up the cross-modal research lab at Oxford. Um, Charles and I have uh, also become great friends, but Charles is is the guru of cross-modalism. And that's basically the idea that our senses work together. The modalities of our senses can can cross. And we know that with a synesthete, somebody who has synesthesia, this is literally true. So for somebody with synesthesia, you play them a piece of music, they may actually tell you what that music smells like. Or they may see a color, or maybe they smell something and they can actually hear it. And what Charles has found in his research is that to some extent, we're all natural synesthetes. We all kind of use this sensory input in a lot of different ways. And so thinking about sound and another one of our senses, taste, for instance, We've been able to tease out the sonic seasonings for spiciness, for sweetness, for bitterness. And we found that we can change your perception of flavor, not just by what we're putting in your mouth, but by what we're putting in your ears. And we use these sensory hacks in a lot of different ways. You know, one of the most interesting uh, pieces from a brand standpoint is some research that Charles did around uh, an aerosol spray can. And the story behind this research was that Charles brought test subjects, put them into a soundproof booth, gave them an aerosol spray can. There was a microphone test subjects had on, a, on headphones. He said, spray this can, listen to the sound. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you some questions. So psst, they would spray and Charles would say, how soft did this sound? How hard did it sound? Was this feminine? Was it masculine? Uh, was it loud? Was it soft? Different um, descriptions around the sound. Then he would give them another spray can, say, do the same thing. They'd spray it again. He'd ask them the questions. He'd rate the answers. So this would go on for a few different cans and a few different nozzles being depressed and the sound of the the aerosol coming out. What the test subjects didn't realize was that um, the contents of the can were the same, the amount uh, was the same, the cans were exactly the same. It was actually frequencies of the sound of the spray were being attenuated by an engineer outside of the the booth. And they used that research to um, understand what the on-brand sound of the spray was for Axe deodorant. And in the Axe deodorant cans, there was a plastic top. It was 
designed to look like a, a protector cap. You would twist it in order to depress the nozzle. But that cap was actually designed to enhance and baffle certain frequencies of the sound to get the sound of the spray most on brand with Axe deodorant. So products are playing with sound all the time. We do this a lot in the automotive world because sound for us, the sound of the engine is very often um, part of the power behind it. BMW found that um, in 2015 in their M series cars, they were so quiet. People were complaining that the car wasn't powerful enough when they knew that it was powerful. And so what the engineers did is they went back, they mic'd up the sound of the engine and recorded that, had some other synthesized sound they added to it, and installed it so that you could dial that sound in through your radio. Wow. Porsche 911s actually have a patented um, piece of equipment that goes into the engine compartment that channels the sound from the engine into the cockpit. And it's because we know that our sense of power, of force, of movement is being shaped by sound. So when you think about this multi-sensory aspect, that's where it gets fascinating to me when we take these ideas out into the real world and think about how we might shape our environment, how we might nudge certain behaviors. And I think this was the interesting um, pivot point for me in the TED Talk it was because the first half of the TED Talk is, hey, I'm going to tell you about all these things that we're doing in advertising with sound. But the point of this discussion isn't to talk about you know, how we might be manipulating you. The point of this discussion is to say, how could we use these techniques to bring about solutions to problems that we might encounter? Noise, exercise, health, and and that was was the real point that I was leading to. It's a really interesting point, Steve, because people listening might say, okay, Axe deodorant and a plastic lid is one thing. Yes, you can create a lid that baffles the sound, changes the frequencies, and gives a perception of a more masculine spray or whatever the desired effect might be. The Axe effect, as they call it, or the Lynx effect. People might say, but a building, a restaurant, a hospital isn't a plastic lid, you know, what can you do in such a big space as a, as a room or a building to tune it in such a way that makes people have a perception of it? And one of the things I've been fascinated learning doing the uh, Quiet Mark podcast and speaking to acousticians is finding out, like, for example, on the last episode, episode seven with Martin Rawlins from Baswa, they have a, a plaster, an acoustic plaster system where he was talking about the fact that they've treated the Apple Store in New York or they've uh, treated the V&A members bar, which looks massive. And people have said this is going to be a really cavernous space. It's going to be like uh, the, you know, the, the sound in that space is going to be very loud. It's going to be not a very good place for conversation. And yet with treatments or with, through products like Baswell's acoustic plaster, you can actually... The architect doesn't have to compromise their visual aesthetic, but they can treat the space acoustically in such a way that people walk in and go, wow, this space feels right. So you can tune spaces and something that Quiet Mark is doing with its Acoustics Academy is providing a directory of Quiet Mark verified products, whether it's uh, walls, floors, doors, ceilings, vents, whatever it might be, they're enabling people to actually treat a place and make it sound better acoustically. Again, referring to your TED Talk, Steve, you talked about uh, an experiment that Brian Eno had done in a hospital looking at the, the sound of healthcare. And you, you're on stage and there's all these beeps. And well, could you describe it better to us, please? Sure. You know, I've been really fascinated about the application um, of a lot of this sonic science to healthcare, to health and wellness, to environments. Um, and Charles and I actually uh, authored a paper that was published um, recently about the impact of music, soundscapes, and noise on patient outcomes and patient satisfaction. Mm. The piece of work that you're talking about for, for Brian Eno um, at Montefiore Hospital in, in Hove uh, was a, an interactive piece of music that was in uh, waiting rooms and in a meditation room. 
that was designed to reduce stress, to help people become more relaxed. Because, you know, you're not typically going to a hospital because you want a pleasant day out in the park. <laughs> you know, you're usually there because something has gone wrong. And when we think about the sonic environments of hospitals, particularly alarm design, you know, uh, there are other researcher friends uh, of mine, Joseph Schlesinger, uh, in particular from Vanderbilt University, who's looking into alarm fatigue. What happens when you're constantly bombarded with the sounds of beeps and notifications? Uh, if you've ever been in the hospital, you know that, what that's like. It's extremely stressful. Uh, not only for the patients, but there's evidence that the healthcare workers themselves sometimes are missing alarms because they're just fatigued. Mm. And so looking at the design of these sounds, you know, how can we shape the sounds in such a way that they still communicate the information that the caregivers need, but do it in such a way that doesn't create a cacophony of sound? In this, uh, this piece of research that Charles and I did titled um, Medicine's Melodies, uh, we also talk about another artist, Japanese artist by the name of Yoko Sen. And Yoko found herself um, in a hospital for quite a while and uh, experiencing just the noise of everything around her. And one of the things that she did uh, after she got out of the hospital was uh, sampled all of these noises and found that if you put them all together, there was dissonance and they were all just assaulting your senses. And simply by retuning the sounds, she didn't even change the sounds themselves. Mm -hmm. She just tuned them so that when they all happened together, they were in harmony. So it was still communicating what, what the, the technicians would need to hear, but in such a way that was much more pleasant. And so it's just even some of these simple kind of changes that we can make. You know? And I think to your point, when we think about spaces and buildings, there are so many things from a sensory standpoint to consider. You know, the first is the architecture. So certainly as an architect, you begin thinking about um, the shapes in the building. You know, in a recording studio, uh, you you don't have right angles. And that's because you don't want the sound reflecting back at you in, in these right angles. So every corner uh, isn't exactly a corner. Mm. And you can design buildings with these, with the reflection pieces in mind. Uh, it's fascinating to think about how the who knows whether the sonic architects um, in the ancient world thought about this but there's ways in which some of these old rooms and cathedrals seemed to be built quite naturally that tune into certain frequencies that research has actually been able to show calms us and quiets us down. You know, I think of the in in St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, the whisper gallery at the top of the dome mm. where you can be across from someone and whisper and it sounds like they're sitting sitting next to you. Yeah. So you can think about architectural design, mm. but then there's also thinking about the source of the sound. What are the sounds in the environment itself, the taxonomy, if you will, whether it's people moving, whether it's machinery, what are, what are some of those sound sources that you want to be there? For instance, in a restaurant, we know that some of the sounds of the kitchen can actually enhance your experience of the meal. But there are other sounds such as noisy plates, uh, a server station that take away from that experience. So you want to look at those sound sources. How can you magnify the pleasant ones that actually communicate things about that space that you want to have there? And then how can you dampen other sounds? And this is where, where designers of sound systems uh, have, have done some really brilliant work. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I live, there's a married couple, the Myers, uh, and they started a company called Meyer Sound. And originally, they were building speaker systems for concerts, for live events. But the Myers also happen to be foodies. They, they love to, to eat in restaurants. <laughs> uh, and they noticed this problem with sound. You know, one of the problems in restaurants 
is when you have all of this noise happening, to have a conversation with someone else, that conversation needs to be about seven decibels above the noise floor. And that just means it needs to be a little bit louder than everything else that's going on. But there's actually something we call the Lombard effect. As the, as the noise floor begins to raise, we have to raise our voices. Yeah. And so as we continue to raise our voices, the space gets louder and louder. Yeah. So the Myers came up with a sound system and there are wall coverings that are associated with yeah. it. And there are, five, I think, about five different restaurants in the area now that have incorporated this system. And what it does is it uses an array of speakers in the restaurant, an array of microphones to pick up certain sounds that can then be reflected back down through the speakers, and also wall treatments that look like art, but they're really acoustic baffles. And with an iPad app, Mm -hmm. uh, the servers in the restaurant can, with a few touches of a button, change the perception of the entire acoustical space of the restaurant. Fantastic. And it's amazing. You know, you don't really notice it when you're eating there until someone points out the fact that you have no problem hearing the person sitting across from you. You can still hear the music, but the restaurant isn't loud and noisy. And, Fantastic. you know, it's fascinating, you know, this topic of noise that the number one complaint about restaurants isn't food. It's, it's sound. Noise. It's very it's interesting, noise. Steve. In episode six, our guest was Wade Bray from Head Acoustics, who talks exactly about this. He talks about um, the Lombard effect and how it just gets louder and louder and louder. And did mention certain solutions that could that were existing that were to put audio back into the space. And I went on to then read an article about does loudness impact, can it impact our health, our physical health? And it showed, there was this study mm -hmm. that showed that in Sweden, and I forget the name of the chap who had done the study, but they played music at 70 decibels in a restaurant, and they also played it at 50 decibels. This was in Stockholm. And they noticed that when the music was played at 70 decibels, people ordered fattier foods and more steaks yes. and and they kind of in some respects spent more money you know which was good for the restaurant you know they spent more money on the visit when the music was louder than they did when it was at 55 but they were less inclined to return to the restaurant because they had this memory of it being that loud space where they couldn't hear their friends where they were trying to have a conversation and eat. So it might have been good for the visit. They might have had a lot of comfort food, but were they going to become loyal, long-lasting customers, which, as we know from programs like Cheers, <laughs> is where the where the, the real money comes from. So, yeah, that was a really interesting story. So to hear that there are there is this company that's created an app that provides a solution where, well, I guess they say you can have your cake and eat it, uh, literally, right. uh, is, is, a, is a good thing. Yeah, well, I think um, this is an important thing to consider because we're not that intentional with sound. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that in, in my world where we look at brands and advertising, sound is often the last thing that's thought about. And I think this is true a lot of times in um, building our, our cityscapes, perhaps even in thinking about our, our home environments. And if sound has this impact on our physiology, if it has an impact on our psychology, certainly it has an impact on people living and working in these spaces. This idea that noise particularly can have really adverse effects. You know, we're, we were talking about nutrition and obesity, and there's was actually a study done um, looking at noise factors from people living near busy highways. And uh, what the researchers found that was for every 10 decibel increase in road noise, they found that in general, there was a three centimeter increase in waste size. Wow. And at airports, loud airplanes actually was more like a six centimeter increase. So, you know, it's having an impact on our health. Um, you know, it has an impact on nutrition you mentioned the noise in, in the restaurants. It's also that noise affects the flavor of the food. We found that in really noisy environments, the food's not as flavorful. So it's not tasting as good. So when you start understanding how powerful this is, 
you realize we need to begin thinking about the architecture of our spaces. We need to be thinking about what's producing noise and what of that noise is desirable and not, and how do we compensate for that? We need to be thinking about what are systems and innovations that we can use, like the Constellation Sound System from the Myers um, or other ways of, of treating sound. We need to begin thinking about what are our music choices? You know, there are a lot of spaces that they have music playing in the background, but usually it's just there for filler. What if we start thinking about how we want to move people through a space? Are there different times of the day where maybe we need the people to move faster? Is there a space where we want them to slow down? How are we adjusting for the rise and fall of levels with sound as more people or less people are in an environment? What are we wanting people to pay attention to? You know, and there's all kinds of tricks. You know, I'm fascinated looking at uh, at Disneyland, Disney World, and how the the designers there actually use the water features, the fountains, to create white noise between the different, you know, Tomorrowland and Frontierland, and so yeah. as you move from one world to another, these water features kind of help Moss. mask the right. sounds from the worlds so that you're moving into an experience multi-sensory. And I think that's, you know, if I were to say to architects, and, and I, I know a lot of architects do think about this, you know, but my challenge to architects would be, you know, think multi-sensory, you know, think about how we're going our brains are going to be wanting to make sense of how the sound around us works and if what we see and what we hear and what we smell and what we touch um, is a congruent experience that feels right to us but if something's mismatched somehow it feels wrong we're going to tend to want to avoid those spaces you know we we don't want to be there and I think this is particularly important now that we're in a pandemic and many of us are now working from home mm. and the sounds in our home environment sometimes are changing. And we have to be mindful about, you know, our partners who are living with us, our children, you know, how are we interacting with them? Uh, and, you know, it, it brings me to, one of the biggest changes for me during the pandemic, which mm -hmm. has been the world just sounds different. Yes. I find myself listening in, in very different ways. So I think all of these things are important to think about when we think about the oral architecture of a space. Indeed. There's a YouTube video uh, that Quiet Mark recently posted on their LinkedIn and it looks at the sound of the world. You talk about the world sounding different during the pandemic. And it has sound bars on the map of the world. So you see these lines moving up on every single continent. And the moment it hits March 23rd, these sound bar lines just drop. You see it happening in China first, which is when which went into lockdown first, of course. Um, but it's very interesting to see how the world has quietened down uh, during the, the pandemic time. A question I do want to ask, because we're on talking about continents and being on different parts of the world, you mentioned earlier that you're in San Francisco and I'm here in London recording. I'd like to say, I know you work with Pandora, but I'm going to phrase the question like this. What do you do in San Francisco working with Pandora, Steve? <laughs> sure. Well, you know, my official title is the Sonic Strategy Director, <laughs> um, and I work within Pandora in a, uh, a subdivision of the company called Studio Resonate. Uh, and Studio Resonate is Pandora's in-house audio consultancy. It's worth saying for UK listeners who Pandora is. I know in America they're huge, sure. but they're not so well known in the UK. So could you start with that if you wouldn't mind? Sorry. Yeah, so, so Pando Pandora is actually one of the first um, music streaming services before Spotify came into existence that uh, was built around this idea of a music genome, you know, looking for what are similarities in music? How would we tie these things together? And the idea was originally, if you could construct your own radio station 
that would play just the music that you liked? How could we build that platform for you? So Pandora started as a music streaming service. Um, it's exclusive to the to the U.S. It's never expanded, you know, outside the confines of the U.S. But uh, we are recently acquired by SiriusXM, which is a satellite radio company, and we also represent the ad inventory for SoundCloud. So okay. we uh, have a huge share of uh, ears here in the in the U.S. And so we stream music, um, we help people discover uh, new music, and then we work with advertisers who advertise on our our platform. So people often ask me, uh, Sonic Strategy Director, that's a pretty cool sounding title, but what <laughs> exactly is that? <laughs> and um, I often refer to myself as an audio alchemist, you know, mm. and, an, and an alchemist um, in the, the, the world of uh, Carl Jung, who is a Swiss psychiatrist, um, was someone who uh, blended things together in search of, uh, of something magical and precious. Uh, you know, we also often think of it uh, uh, in in the world of fantasy, uh, where you're trying to come up with a precious metal by blending others. And so, in thinking of myself as an audio alchemist, yeah. um, what my job really entails is blending sound science and sound art in order to help um, our clients make sound decisions. So it really is this idea of understanding the science behind sound, understanding the aesthetics behind creativity using sound, and becoming really intentional about those choices. What are the perceptions we want people to have? What are the behaviors we would want to nudge people towards? And how can we blend science and art to kind of produce that magic? And it really does feel like magic when you get it right. You know, when when somebody tastes a piece of chocolate and they're listening to a soundscape and you give them another piece of chocolate and they listen to a different soundscape and they're telling you how that chocolate sounds different. And then when you say, but it's the same piece of chocolate, you've just blown their mind. Right. How could you change the taste by just changing what I'm listening to? When we start looking at hospitals and nutrition. What if you have a diabetic patient who can't have sweets anymore? What if we could come up with a playlist instead of just adding, you know, fake sugar, we could maybe put some of the sweetness back in with sweet sounding soundscapes. Fantastic. What could we do to encourage you to eat more food if you needed to do that? Mm. How could we help you eat less? How could we help outcomes for you, your physical therapy? replace some drug treatments or enhance drug treatments with sound, relax patients, nudge you to throw away your trash in the bin, nudge you to take the stairs instead of the escalator, nudge you to visit art, nudge you to go to a part of the city that maybe you hadn't visited before. Are these the kind of solutions that brands who advertise with or collaborate with Pandora come to you for? Are we talking about maybe a coffee shop that want a playlist which might encourage more coffee purchasing? Is that the sort of thing you might get involved with? Certainly. Um, we've done that. We have um, a part of our company called Pandora for Business um, that puts soundscapes together for retail environments. And we look at things such as, you know, called day parting in terms of the time of day, are there more people, less people? Do you want people to move more in one areas, less than others? But we can also look at what are taste preferences in certain parts of the country um, and develop soundscapes that maybe uh, are more regional uh, appealing, but still on brand. Um, and then certainly, depending on the environment and behaviors we want to elicit there, we can look at uh, how sound might impact choices on a menu uh, or be related to different campaigns so that what you might hear on an advertisement uh, on the television or the radio might be congruent with something that you hear when you have an experience of the brand in that retail environment. environment. You know, brands are beginning to look at, you know, not just how are they selling their products, but uh, how are they 
providing some meaning or maybe a, a common good. And I, I find um, that there's some really interesting opportunities for brands to get involved in, you know, looking at what are problems that exist, what are potential sonic solutions, and how can brands maybe show up and provide solutions um, for their users and, and consumers in those environments. In terms of what you talked about there of times of day and the number of people that might be in a space, whether it's a diner or whatever it might be, or a shop, the soundscapes that you're creating, are do they comprise really of songs, music, or is it also other sounds? Most often we're providing playlists that are music-based, mm-hmm. um, certainly depending on um, the retail environment. We can create soundscapes that, uh, you know, maybe incorporate other sonic cues. Um, This isn't something that we're as involved with, but certainly something that I've done uh, in the past and continue to consult on is, um, you know, in in environments where you're trying to create zones, where you really do want a sense of moving from one space to another. You want to experience that. Uh, And so how can we use... um, speakers that direct the sound um, acoustically into a very narrow space. So mm. you're only hearing it when you're in that space. Mm. Uh, are there sounds of nature or other sounds that we want to have present in that environment? And how can we build those kinds of soundscapes? So so when we think about what, uh, what Brian Eno did um, with his composition, uh, he created a composition that we call it's regenerative. There are different tracks that are designed um, so that they aren't necessarily always playing um, at the same time. Um, they're playing at different intervals, and it means that the soundscape is always changing. Everything works together, but you don't get the impression that it's a loop where I've heard that before. And I should mention you know, that very often when we talk about sound in spaces and environments, particularly with brands, you know, we're talking about the consumers. Often people that are forgotten are the the staff, the workers, the other folks who maybe have to be in that space for hours on end. So when you build a soundscape, you know, a consumer coming in, they may only be in that environment for 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe a little longer. The chances that they're going to hear a song repeat or a sound that they've heard um, is less likely. If you've got somebody that's in that space for eight hours, they're going to get tired very quickly of hearing the same thing over and over and over again. So if you are constructing soundscapes, you need to take those people um, into consideration, you know, the, the healthcare workers in the hospital, you know, what are environments you can create for them? What are escapes where they can have a sonic rest from the cacophony, from the stress, from everything else around them? Um, so this, this is really a much more holistic approach to thinking about sound instead of it just being about an advertisement or a piece of music that's that's playing in the background. It really is thinking about the totality of an experience and how there's an interplay of all of these things that that work together. I'm so glad you said that because as someone who many years ago had a weekend job working in a clothes shop during the Christmas period, if I heard I wish it could be Christmas every day by Wizard one more time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad someone's got the staff in mind and not just the customers, let me put it that way. There's a there's a fascinating uh, piece of research uh, around Christmas music in retail environments. Is there? And one of the things, yeah, one of the things that they found in the study was that um, as you got closer and closer to uh, to Christmas Eve, they found that you know people that were coming in to shop like the day before, they're really stressed out. <laughs> they waited yeah. to the last minute. And the last thing they want to hear is some kind of bouncy Christmas song <laughs> that's reminding them 
of the fact that they've waited to the last minute. Uh, and in this 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 research study, they actually found that um, you know some retail environments that were playing this kind of bright, happy Christmas song were seeing a reduction in traffic that was directly related to that choice of soundscape. So again, I just point that out as a way of saying these things we don't normally think about. But when you understand the psychology of sound that's behind it, you realize that what seems like an unimportant choice actually has a huge impact on the bottom line. It's been fascinating discussing this with you, Steve. You know, it's a different topic to the, the typical topics that we've looked at on the Quiet Mark podcast to date, which has really previously focused on acoustics within buildings and the way that soundscapes make us feel in buildings. And one of the reasons I'm, you know, knew that I wanted to bring you on the show was I kind of wanted to place an emphasis on the importance of our relationship with sound and hearing your examples of, you know, the the way it evokes memories and the way that that impacts on our decision-making is fascinating. And I think one of the key things that you've said is that this can be brought into spaces. And actually, we know as well that from a music background, sometimes you can release a song and you know it's a number one. And other times there's something in a song and it just bombs and sometimes record companies and bands don't know why and I think the same can be said of building design if you you can create a building and it might look fantastic but if people go in it and it's echoey and it's sound bouncing all over the space the opportunity could be missed and it's this conversation has really helped place an emphasis on getting the sound and the look of a space in perfect harmony to have the overall human desired effect yeah. Well, you know, I think that whether you're talking about sonic identity for a brand or the sonic identity for a building, how you're approaching oral architecture, uh, I, I really think the truth of the matter is that doesn't start with our ears. It starts with what's between them. And the more we can bring intention, good design sensibilities and really think about the human element. You know, if, if we could stop long enough to listen to our spaces and see how are they speaking to us, I think the path sometimes becomes really clear. We're able to intuit it uh, in a way that we can express it. And then we can help the designers, the architects, the creators, the installers to put it together mm. in a way that works for everyone you're right steve it's all in the listening and it's been great listening to you share your experience today thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the show and speaking today so i know it's early morning there in san francisco i appreciate you getting up so early to do this with well th thank you for letting me share my voice and uh you know hopefully anybody listening to in on our conversation today uh, will walk away and maybe hear the world a little differently. And if they do that, we've both done our jobs. All right. Here's to that. Thank you, Steve. Have a good rest of the day over there in the US. You take care. Thanks, Simon. So next time you buy wine from your local supermarket, I'm sure you'll pay a little bit more attention to the music that's playing in the background. Thank you so much to my good friend Steve for being our guest on this episode of the Quiet Mark podcast. It's fascinating to get an insight into the way that sound can be used in advertising to influence our purchase decisions. But not only that, it really does demonstrate the power of sound and the effects it has on our emotions, and therefore highlights the vital necessity for good acoustics in the spaces we live and work in. Which brings to mind something that Ethan Bordeaux, sound concept lead at the International Wellbuilding Institute, said in episode 2 of the Quiet Mark podcast when talking of the various performance criteria that buildings need to meet in order to achieve well-building certification. Before we sign off, let's listen again to what Ethan said about that in the interview that I did with him in February at Quiet Mark's Acoustics Academy launch event. For all well projects, when you performance verify a space, you're looking at key parameters for all well buildings, whether that's air quality, light quality, thermal comfort, 
water quality, and even acoustics. Acoustics being the most performance verified component of the whale building standard. So when a project achieves certification, there is a lot that has to happen beforehand. And that involves third-party assessment, which is something to really be proud of when a project reaches that finish line with certification. So while it's not compulsory, it's demonstrating leadership in the architectural community in a way that we're not necessarily seeing with other programs or platforms. Thanks again for listening to the Quiet Mart podcast. I do hope you can join us for future episodes. We've got some great guests in the pipeline and we look forward to sharing more adventures in acoustics with you in the future. Till then, stay safe, take care and goodbye. Bye for now.